Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome to this special supplemental episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. So this episode is going to be a little bit different because rather than me interviewing a researcher about a study they've done or a book they've written on how to implement uh, literacy research into classroom practice, this one's a different topic. We're going to be talking all about e-learning today, and it's just going to be me. I don't have anyone I'm interviewing. It's just me and you. So due to current events, e-learning seems to be at the front of everyone's mind. Yesterday, schools in my state of Utah were canceled for 14 days due to the coronavirus. And I know that there are thousands of other schools nationwide where this is also occurring. So naturally, e-learning seems to be the obvious alternative. We have this technology. Let's just have students learn at home. Uh, But how theory and research influence this mass migration to digital is yet to be seen. And that's a bit of what I want to tackle within this episode. So a bit of back history, I have quite a passion for using technology to influence learning. My master's degree from Utah State was in instructional technology, and wow, that was such a great program. Probably my biggest takeaway from my time there was that you can't treat e-learning the same as a face-to-face format, just digital. E-learning is different. It has its own set of pedagogies and its own practices that make it effective. While there's certainly a lot of overlap with face-to-face, I mean, good teaching's good teaching, right? If we're going to have this mass migration online, we need to equip ourselves with knowledge and ideas about online learning in order to maximize the likelihood of our effectiveness. So the goal of what I want to provide you today is a compass of where you can head with your migration to teaching online. Sometimes in education, we really are looking for that blueprint of do this, then this, then this, then this, and wave your magic wand and everything will be fine. But in my experience, development is me as a professional educator doesn't happen that way, where the best development I've had has been where there's been a compass needle that's been pointed and that's the direction I follow, and I have to sort of build my own blueprint. So today is not going to be a step-by-step, do these five special things and you'll be ready to go for your online learning environment, though there are those resources out there. This one's going to be, let me teach you about theories and ideas and ideas for best practice that I have found personally meaningful you know, to me when I've tinkered with online instruction uh, as, we, as we have this mass migration to online learning. So with that, let's dig into e-learning. The outline of this episode is going to be pretty straightforward. First, I have two e-learning theories that I'm going to talk about I found particularly useful. And then the back half of the episode, I want to talk about two different studies that are going to help us take those theories and think about what it might look like as practice. I'm super excited to talk about e-learning with you today. And if you have feedback on this episode or any other episodes, you can feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. But I'm very excited to have you here for us to talk about e-learning and be thinking about how can we take our regular classroom instruction and adapt it into online learning in meaningful, engaging, productive ways. So first, let's talk learning theory. 
There are two major theories that shape my thinking around using e-learning, and anyone who knows EdTech knows these by heart. They are SAMR and TPAC. So SAMR, you'll also hear it called SAMR. I think both are acceptable pronunciations. I just call it SAMR. It was developed in the early 2000s by Dr. Ruben Puentendura as a framework to help educators think about technology integration. SAMR is an acronym. It stands for Substitution, Augmentation, Modification, and Redefinition. Our efforts to integrate technology into our instruction can be categorized into one of those four levels. So one thing that helps when thinking about SAMR is that it centers around the learning task, and then it describes how technology could alter that task. So the most basic level in SAMR is the substitution level. In this level, the technology used is a direct substitute for a more traditional means of doing the learning. There are no functional changes to the task. It's the same task. The task is just used with technology. So an example would be I could have students read a text about a Utah predator on a screen rather than on paper. Those two tasks are basically equivalent. So on the SAMR model, that would be a substitution. Moving up to the next level, we can look at the A in SAMR, which is augmented. This is where the technology used to achieve the learning task acts as a direct substitute, but then there is also functional improvement in areas of the task. An example of this could be rather than having each student read the same text about a Utah predator that I would have them read on paper, I could have them read a variety of texts about several Utah predators curated from the internet that varied by interest and or text complexity. It's mostly similar to reading the same text on paper in class, but then there's the added benefit of being able to differentiate the text and allowing for student interest. So it's similar, the task is similar, but it's been slightly augmented due to uh, the technology used. From there, we move into the top half of the taxonomy. So the transition between the bottom half of SAMR to the top half of SAMR marks a significant shift in the learning task. Where the bottom two levels are more about task enhancement or adding to the task through technology, the top two are about task transformation or morphing the task into something that wouldn't be possible with more traditional means of learning. To me, it also seems that the shift from enhancement to transformation also typically coincides with a transition from students as consumers of knowledge or learning to becoming producers of knowledge or what they learned. So now that we're in that top half of the SAMR model, the third level up is called modification. And this is where the task is significantly redesigned through technology. So continuing with our Utah Predator example, modification could be students creating their own blog posts about their animal within their LMS like Canvas or Google Classroom that allows students to like or comment on as well as from their peers. In this case, the task of learning about Utah Predators has now been transformed to a social experience online where individual students have become experts on a particular animal and their peers can learn about those animals asynchronously through blog posts. Finally, we have the redefinition level, which is all about redefining the task into something that could not be possible without the technology. So an example of this could be students mapping out the locations of Utah Predators using Google Earth and then using the 360 future to view the habitats of these predators and creating a screencast showcasing their learning and that could be available for their classmates to watch. 
The task of learning about a Utah predator has been transformed into something new, actually viewing the habitat of these predators and then providing that learning to other students, something that wouldn't be possible without technology. So those are the four levels of SAMR, substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. And they move from on the lower end to task enhancement, and then towards the upper end, it moves toward task transformation. Now, sometimes these categories aren't exactly cut and clear of a certain thing is always going to go in that in a certain category. That might depend on which aspect you're looking at it. But the point here is that we need to be thinking of sort of the trend of what SAMR is, is that there are some tasks that we can use with technology that are direct substitute for paper. There's nothing added, it's just a direct substitute. And there's other tasks possible through technology where we can enhance or even transform that task into something that would not be possible without the, without the technology being used. So I have two thoughts that I wanna share about SAMR. The first one is that SAMR is presented as a taxonomy. And frequently, when you hear or read or watch presentations about SAMR, even if it's implicitly, you'll, you'll hear the message that the bottom levels of SAMR are inferior to the upper levels of SAMR. And that's not the case. Most of what I've been talking about with SAMR, I've taken from a publication by Hamilton, Rosenberg, and Akoglu uh, from 2016, where they argue that the SAMR model should be viewed as a fluid model of technology integration, one where all levels, substitution, augmentation, modification, redefinition, all levels are need to be successful. I kind of like to think of it as Webb's depth of knowledge for questioning, but with technology. With Webb's DOK, all the DOK levels are acceptable. It's just as educators, we try to scaffold towards the higher levels of questioning when possible. But sometimes you have to have those lower levels of DOK intact before students can progress you know, to more advanced or complicated or open-ended types of, of questioning. So it's sort of the same thing I view with SAMR, is that all the levels of SAMR are acceptable, whether you're substituting or re redefining the learning. It's just a way to think about technology integration. But perhaps once we have the basics down, we can consider ways to scaffold our students to having more transformative experiences through technology. And that leads me to my second thought. In my opinion, there is a fifth level of SAMR. So my model would be D SAMR. I would put a D below the S, and I would call that D diminished. And this is a case where the integrated technology is actually inferior to traditional methods. This is obviously undesirable. This is what we want to stay away from as we're integrating our technology. Just because something uses technology does not inherently make it better. What makes it better is if we're able to achieve our learning tasks better through using technology. So generally, something that has diminished learning through, uh, through integrating technology would be something that has a similar outcome as a paper pencil, but it either takes excessive time or it's overly complicated or it just straight up results in inferior learning. Those are the areas of technology integration we want to stay away from. So an example of this could be an elaborate classroom library checkout system using technology that requires students to navigate to a Google form and manually type out the title of the book being checked out. This is a poor integration of technology because a paper and pencil could do the same job in a much simpler, more time efficient way. So for those of us engaged in online learning, our first step here is just to think, 
with what we're designing to be online, which level of SAMR does it fit into? Let's just start there. And then as we get more skilled, we can sort of scaffold towards the more transformative experiences. But let's just start by categorizing it into those levels so that way we can just bare minimum make sure that we are avoiding the diminished level where we're actually providing inferior instruction due to technology. I love the SAMR model because it's so simple to understand, it's easy to categorize, and it's focused on the learning task and how it's influenced by technology. The next EdTech theory I want to share is all about what the teacher brings to the table in designing effective instruction that's integrated with technology. And the name of that model is TPAC. So TPAC is an EdTech theory that stands for Technical, Pedagogical, and Content Knowledge. And it helps illustrate what expertise a teacher will need in order to successfully teach. It's built off of Shulman's 1986 theory of pedagogical content knowledge, which basically said that neither content knowledge or pedagogical knowledge is enough for a teacher to be successful. Content knowledge is what is to be taught, so reading, math, social studies, science, etc., whatever you teach. The pedagogical knowledge is how it should be taught, so basically methods of learning theory, classroom management, the ways that it's delivered. And so the Shulman's 1986 pedagogical content knowledge said that you can't have just one of those. If you have a lot of content knowledge but no pedagogical knowledge, students aren't going to learn. And if you're really high in pedagogical knowledge but low in content knowledge, students also will not learn. And so that was kind of the forerunner towards TPAC was this idea of you need to have both content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge. Effective teachers possess both skills. They know how to teach and what they're teaching. So in 2006, two researchers, Mishra and Kohler, introduced a third key domain to enhance the efficacy of a teacher in the classroom, and that was technical knowledge. They argue that the ubiquity of technology in classrooms is here to stay, and that successful technological knowledge relies on a teacher's ability to learn and relearn the ever-evolving technologies present in our society. Misha and Kohler also add that it's not so simple as just learning the technology. Typically, technology comes with affordances or trade-offs, if you will. The trade-offs of technology are usually nuanced, and they interact with a teacher's content and pedagogical knowledge. So, for example, my ability to create an online quiz with Google Forms relies not only on my ability to navigate Google Forms, but also relies on my pedagogical knowledge of how to assess learning and my content knowledge of my fourth grade math standards. Tweaks in any of those three areas, so the technical knowledge of knowing how to make a quiz, the pedagogical knowledge of knowing how to assess learning, and the content knowledge of fourth grade math, if you tweak any of those, like let's say for example, I didn't know how to do a free response choice in Google, in Google quizzes, I can only do multiple choice, it will affect the output of the other domains. So in other words, in order to be a successful teacher with technology, you have to be able to have a sound footing in all three of those areas. Content knowledge, what you will teach. Pedagogical knowledge, how you will teach it. And technical knowledge, or the mode of which that presentation will be delivered.
Mischer and Kohler, the 2006 article that introduced TPAC, has this fantastic paragraph that I, I have to read word for word because it so accurately portrays the challenge of integrating technology into teaching. Thus, our model of technology integration, TPAC, in teaching and learning argues that developing good content requires a thoughtful interweaving of all three key sources of knowledge, technology, pedagogy, and content. The core of our argument is that there is no single technological solution that applies for every teacher, every course, or every view of teaching. Quality teaching requires developing a nuanced understanding of the complex relationships between technology, content, and pedagogy, and using this understanding to develop appropriate, context-specific strategies and representations. Productive technology integration in teaching needs to consider all three issues not in isolation, but rather within the complex relationships in the system defined by the three key elements. And that's from page 1029 of their 2006 publication. So when thinking about these complex relationships, we can conceptualize TPAC as a Venn diagram with three overlapping circles. Each circle represents technological, pedagogical, and content knowledge, and while the middle represents what we would hope to be the ideal, where there is technological, pedagogical, and content knowledge centered. So all this talk about nuances and trade-offs and complex relationships can make TPAC sound a bit daunting. So what's the main takeaway here? The main takeaway is that even if you are a digital immigrant, you still bring a lot to the table. You are the expert in your classroom. So what are your strengths? Do you have a wealth of pedagogical knowledge? That's great. Do you have content, Do you have content knowledge a mile deep? That's fantastic. So if you've already got content and pedagogical knowledge, which I assume you do because you're a fantastic classroom teacher, if you already have two, those two things, you're two-thirds of the way there. So finding where your content and pedagogical knowledge ends and your technological knowledge begins is the crucial step to making a successful leap to teaching online. Do you use a lot of partner discussion to help students learn? Find ways to break them into groups and have discussion, whether through typing or video. Do you use a lot of explicit instruction and modeling? Do a screencast or video of yourself teaching the skills with Think Aloud and allow students to respond. Or do you like to structure open-ended, inquiry-based assignments? Find a way to deliver the breadcrumbs to the students and then let them go and explore on their own and report back. The point is, infusing technology into your teaching does not mean you are starting at ground zero. Play to what you already know, and then try and survey what technologies are out there that can help you play to your strengths in delivering content. Okay, so that ends the theory section of our show. My goal is that I've helped give you at least a direction to think about integrating technology from both a task perspective and a teacher perspective. So next, let's dabble with a little bit of research around technology integration. In this section of the show, I want to highlight just two studies that can help us get a handle on what migrating our learning online can look like. The first study I want to highlight is by Chung and Slavin, 2012. Their study was a meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis is a set of studies where rather than the researchers going out and studying specific people, they take a corpus of studies and then study those studies to find broad trends across the studies. 
So their study was a meta-analysis of 84 studies that investigated over 60,000 K-12 students. The specific thing they were looking at was the role of learning apps, so like a computer app, that can play in reading achievement. And so while these studies were conducted on reading and computer apps within a classroom, I still think the major takeaway from this study applies to us transitioning to teach our students online. So from those 84 studies, they classified 74 into two different categories. And those categories were supplemental and comprehensive uh, uses of technology. The supplemental computer apps were designed to deliver computer-aided instruction. So I'm sure you're familiar with these, but these are the ones where the student sits with the computer guiding the instruction with little intrusion from the teacher. It's somewhat of a closed box where the, the computer is in charge of delivering the instruction. The second category that had uh, they divided the 74 studies into were more comprehensive approaches to integrating technology. So in these ones, there was an app that the student was using to help work on their reading, but the teacher was very involved with what was going on with the app, and the app worked together with uh, regular classroom instruction. And so the teacher was using feedback from the technology to inform classroom instruction and vice versa. So of these two groups, the researchers found that both had a positive effect on learning. Both the more isolationist, the computer-guided instruction versus the more interactive, computer-supported, teacher-driven instruction, both had positive effects on student learning. However, the comprehensive, engaging approach to using technology had an effect size two and a half times larger than the supplemental one. So what that means is that the approach that was more interactive, that was more teacher-driven, and that where the learning on the computer was blended with the classroom instruction was much more effective than the one where just the computer was, was guiding the instruction on its own. So here's the main takeaway from this study, is that as we're designing online learning for our students, we can't just expect our students to sit on the screen all day passively consuming content. Would we ever do that if they were face-to-face -face in our classroom and expect it to be effective? We wouldn't. And so we have to go beyond that sort of stereotype of what online learning is to make it more engaging and effective for our students. Just because our students are not right in front of us does not mean that we can abandon them with routine, low-value work. We can still deliver them a high-quality education despite the physical separation. So how exactly do we do that? The second study I want to highlight may have some answers or at least a direction to help us figure that out. So this study is by DiPetro, Ferdig, Black, and Preston in 2010. And in this study, they followed 16 K-12 online teachers for a year, and they compiled a best list of practices they found from following those K-12 teachers. I was reading through their best practices. I found them very informative, and so I picked the seven that were my favorite to share with you. So the first one is that teachers are skilled with the basic uses of technology. This makes sense given what we just learned about TPAC. Instruction won't happen if there's not at least some technological skills in place to make online learning a thing. So find the tech person at your school. Research on Google or YouTube 
the tools you are wanting to learn have someone out there that has done a demo and posted it. I, I promise there's an example of it somewhere. You've just got to go find it. Just as we expect our students to learn new and challenging content, we ourselves as educators can do the same. And I'm doing the same thing right now. There's technologies that I'm brushing up on and I'm trying to learn and figure out how to integrate with my students. And it is a challenge, but we can learn new things and we can learn the technology aspects of it so we can um, help leverage our content and pedagogical knowledge for student learning outcomes. The next one is that teachers are flexible with their time. This one is huge. When we're teaching in a brick and mortar environment, our schedule is set down to the minute. Yet somehow, at least I find in my classroom, flexibility is kind of how we survive. Teaching online though, requires flexibility, but it's a different type of flexibility than what happens in the classroom. So some time will be spent designing content, other time will be spent grading content and giving feedback, and other time will be spent working with students individually, whether via phone, email, or Skype, or interacting with parents, etc. The division of time is much more fluid and dynamic, which leads to great opportunities, but also challenges. It's not the set, here's your 60 minutes of this and 35 minutes of that and then 90 minutes of that. It is so much more fluid and it's a wave that you kind of have to ride. But once you figure out your routine and how you, how you do those things, how you do those different areas of designing content, grading content, giving feedback, helping students need support and, and working with parents, once you figure out your structure in and online, then, then you'll do great. The next one is similar to the one I just read, but teachers have good organizational skills. This one's a no-brainer. A disorganized teacher is going to have a hard time teaching, no matter the format. But much like the flexibility point, just barely, the organization required in an online format is a little bit different. So you're going to have students going to different parts of the World Wide Web. How are you going to organize that information to make it smooth for students to consume, produce, and submit their assignments to you. A learning management system like Canvas or Google Classroom can go a long way to making this happen, but even within those courses, you've gotta give a lot of thought to how you're going to design it on your end so that the students can have a smooth experience on their end. The last thing you want is a student lost navigating clicks or a student not knowing where to go or excessive time spent just getting to the learning task. It's the same thing in the classroom. I don't want to spend five minutes to have my students get out their math books. It's a procedure that we've just, we've practiced it and it's just quick and it's efficient. The same principle applies, but it's just on the internet. The next one is that teachers establish a presence in the course. I can personally vouch for this one. I've taken more than a dozen classes online, and the ones with more teacher presence were undoubtedly more engaging for me and the ones I learned much more from. So post videos of yourself every day welcoming the class, be active on discussion boards, give timely feedback on submitted assignments, find ways to make sure that the students know that it is still the class they're familiar with. It's just online. You're still the teacher, they're still the students. It's still this great, warm, loving, enjoyable environment. It's just online now. Find ways to make that happen. The next one is that teachers use strategies to address inappropriate behavior in public forms of the course. So this will sometimes happen where a discussion board is set up to, for example, compare and contrast Utah predators. 
and that discussion board somehow devolves into a conversation on Minecraft. Or it just becomes a general chat back and forth between people and not focused on the content. Classroom management still exists with online learning. It's still a thing, but like the other things we've talked about, it's just different. So those comments can be removed and the students can be taught more appropriate ways for them to communicate in public areas of the course. And maybe even there could be a free discussion board created so that students can purely talk about Minecraft or just chat about their day or whatever. In the real classroom, a teacher would model and teach appropriate modes of conduct within the classroom. That's, that's a given. That's like classroom management 101, that you're going to model and teach how you want the students to behave and what you want them to do. The same thing needs to happen online. You need to model and teach what your expectations are while they're participating in the online course. The next one is that teachers use multiple strategies to form relationships that support rich interactions with students. In my opinion, so the next one is that teachers use multiple strategies to form relationships that support rich interactions with students. In my opinion, the best learning usually comes from the interaction that only human than human can provide. So how are you going to structure human to human interaction within your course? This can be done through discussion boards, but also consider ways you can communicate your student with your students using audio or video, whether it's using Skype at their own time, whether it's using Skype and talking to each other live, whether it's posting videos within Canvas or on YouTube, or whether it's using a great resource like Flipgrid. We know that great learning happens within the context of strong relationships. So how are you going to maintain and continue to build person-to-person -person relationships within your course? The last one is that teachers provide students with quick feedback. This is something we know that is just absolutely imperative, non-negotiable in face-to-face learning. The quicker you give a student feedback, the more apt that student is to learn from their feedback. This still applies in e-learning. When a student submits work, you need to do your best to give them precise feedback quickly and accurately. The learning that happens online, it's different on the student end as well. And if the student knows that once they turn in that assignment, that boom, you're going to look at it and you're going to help grade it and give them feedback so that they can either resubmit it or use that to do the next assignment, the more apt they are to be engaged with your course and to be able to actually be learning. So to wrap this up, this is terra incognita for us as educators. Never before has the pendulum shifted so rapidly to mass migrate such a vast amount of learning material online. We should view this time as a massive opportunity. This is the world's largest experiment in showing how we can best deliver content online. But to do this, we need to be equipped as educators. I hope the main message that you take away from here is that online learning is different than face-to-face -face learning. But we can take many of the things we know about face-to-face -face and we just find ways to adapt it. So I've provided you two ways to think about educational technology, the SAMR and TPAC models. And I've also talked about a few studies that help give us some ideas of what of ways our art learning can actually look like when we're online. I hope between these two things, I have given you a compass of where to head next. Feel free to share your experience with me at teachingliteracypodcast.com. Thank you for joining me for this special supplemental episode. I wish you health and I wish you productive online teaching. And until next time, let's go and teach online just a little bit better.
Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.